You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 035, with Chris Cruden, founder and CEO of Inch Capital Management. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know how valuable your time is, so I'm grateful for you spending some of it here with me. I also want to thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really does help me expand the reach of the podcast so more people can learn from the amazing stories of my guests. On today's show, I'm talking to Chris Cruden, founder and CEO of Inch Capital Management. Chris has a long career working for some of the leading firms within the alternative investment business, such as Dean Witter back in the 80s and AHL in the early 90s. And he has crossed path with many of the legends of our industry. But perhaps the biggest influence in terms of mentorship came from the years where he worked with Bob Tamiso, who helped Chris align himself with trading and how he defines himself. Having said that, Chris shares with me that all of the important things he needed to learn about trading, he actually learned in the army. When Chris decided to start his own company, he chose currencies as his investment universe, which helps him stand out in a crowded world with diversified managers. All in all, a wealth of experiences shared by a true veteran. For those of you who are new to the show, let me just say that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode, on the toptradersonplug.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Now, you've been around for quite a while, if I may say, in the managed futures industry. And at different times, you work for what I would consider leaders in different areas. And let me explain that. For instance, I think of Dean Witter back in the day where the wirehouses were a dominant force in identifying and helping some of those managers who later became legends uh, in this part of the hedge fund universe to get started, to get their initial investors on board and where some of the people working for Dean Witter themselves went on to become legends in their own right. Ken Trobin comes to mind, for example. And then you also spent some time at AHL, which we know today has been the source of inspiration and talent for so many European managers who in some way have overtaken the U.S. managers in the last 10 years or so. And working for these two well-known firms, that only takes you up to 1993. So I think there's quite a lot of interesting things that we can explore today. And I really look forward to hearing you sharing all of these 
previous experience and, and bring us up today. But I'm also intrigued about this fact that you've spent the last 20 years focusing on currency markets, which has been a, a prominent asset class at times, but in my view, it hasn't been so prominent, or maybe I should say it's been a bit under the radar for CTAs in the past few years, where they have chosen maybe more diversified strategies. So lots of things to, uh, to discuss, Chris, but before we get to that point, I'd really like you to take us all the way back to the beginning on, and tell us how you ended up choosing this path in, in, in your life. Well, delicately put that I've been in the business a long time, by the way. That's uh, very polite. Um, actually, I started off as a British Army officer. I went to Sandhurst and I was commissioned into the Gordon Highlanders as a platoon commander. And when I left the British Army, I went to what was then Rhodesia. And um, if you uh, follow a career path, such as I had as a very young man set out, as what they euphemistically call a, a, a contract officer, the worst possible thing happened, and that was peace was declared. Right. And so I found myself, uh, and the country renamed Zimbabwe, and I found myself in South Africa um, without a job, but with a regimental tie. Mm. So I knocked on the door of a of a bank that was called Seifert's, Seifert's Trust, now part of Nedbank, right. and they gave me a job um, as a gold analyst. Okay. It's a Scottish gent there <laughs> called uh, Mr. McTaggart. Okay. And um, I said to him, well, that's very kind of you. And he said, not at all for a young Scottish boy like yourself. We're happy to do it. And I said, but I don't know anything about gold. And he said, well, the only thing you need to know about gold is the price it sells on the market, the price that it costs to get it out of the ground, and the difference between the two numbers. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. I said, yes. And he said, well, now you're a gold analyst. <laughs> so Cyphers used to do much of its business through Dean Witter Reynolds. And after a couple of years, um, I'd made friends with some people who from Dean Witter who used to come over. And they said, come to um, see us um, if you're ever in the States. So I did. Sure. And they hired me and Dean Witter under a a man called Ken Tropin at uh, now Graham Capital, who was a, a visionary of his time, um, had started up the Dean Witter Managed Futures um, Department. Now, in those days, there really weren't hedge funds in any sense. Right. Our sort of trading was was managed futures. Uh, you never heard of hedge funds at all. It was all CTAs. And Dean Witter was um, very, very successful. And in fact, I think we did one of the largest um, – new offerings. It was something like 250 million. It was um, oversubscribed by more than two times. And in fact, I think we handed back more money than we raised, which is which is not a problem that many people have these days. <laughs> uh, after the crash in 88, I found myself back in London and was introduced to a man from, from Singer Friedlander in those days. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the firm was called, like many of these uh, firms, they've sort of been consumed by a bigger bank but uh singer freelander he said i haven't a clue what you do but i know some young guys who seem to do a similar thing and that was michael marty and david yeah. at ahl and so i joined them and at the time i think we just moved to german street in mayfair and uh, of course everybody uh were told us that uh, you've absolutely ruined your business you're, you're, you've cut your own throat you've hung yourself nobody is going to go and visit you in in mayfair <laughs> and now of course we we see that they were wrong about that as well sure uh, we had five million dollars and um i think that number actually dropped shortly after i joined i, I like to think the two are not related <laughs> but um it, it dropped and we um went on and raised more money and then 
did the first transaction with Man, I think, in 1990, which was very successful. In 93, I found myself back in uh, New York and joined with a man called um, Robert M. Tomiso, who was uh, very much a, a guiding light for me um, and a great mentor for me. And uh, we were of the opinion, this sounds really bizarre, but we were <laughs> of the opinion that uh, markets take on the characteristics of the participants. And because there were so many people becoming registered as CTAs, that the markets would become crowded, easily spooked, over-leveraged, in other words, bad places to be. Sure. We we looked for a market that did not have those characteristics, and the one that did not have those characteristics was the interbank foreign exchange market. Why? Well, because it was a professional's market. It was literally interbank. Mm. And so we launched our uh, program, which in those days was called uh, Kintyre. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our programs, even to this day at Inch, uh, we always give our programs a Scottish place name. Mm-hmm. And Kintyre, within a very short period of time, had attracted more money and was far more successful than the um, main part of Tomiso business, which was diversified commodity trading. And um, it grew and grew and grew. And it was a, a very successful program, very different in many ways to um what we do now, our currency program now is, is called Kintillo. It was launched in 2000, but uh, the, the idea is basically, was, is basically the same systematic trend following. Tell me, just let's just before we jump here, let's go back to the time when you joined AHL. I'm curious here, how much, because we know today that AHL became so important, you could say, in the European history of managed futures, at that time, what did you and and the founders of AHL, what did they know about what was happening in the States at that time and, and, and the managed futures industry? Because, of course, this is kind of about the same time as the Turtle Project finishes, yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of sort of knowledge initially, as far as I understand the story, uh, of what uh, the AHL founders were doing initially and what was happening on in Chicago at the same time. Well, in those days, we basically traded um, London markets, I think seven to 12 markets when I first joined, mm. at uh, what we would describe as pretty much sort of, relatively speaking, n- nosebleed leverage. Um, we modeled ourselves very much on Mint. Right. Mint, Mint were the um, the heroes yeah. uh, for us. And we did believe that if we added more and more markets, uh, gained more and more diversification and became more and more uh, systematized a la mint mm. then we would uh, replicate some of their success and that that turned out to be true okay interesting and um, yeah so anyway i was i was interrupting you but but please continue with your uh, with your story and and what happened following uh, you know your introduction with with tamiso well with, with tamiso i i had previously noticed even when i was with dean witter in the early to mid 80s that um the large offering we did, and we had that we had the, what were called the cornerstone funds. We had three funds in varying leverages plus cornerstone four, right. which was a currency product. Um, even in those days, the the successful CTAs uh, were or tended to be um, systematic trend followers. Mm. 
um, the the idea of the the the, the hot-handed trader um, was never really something that, that that appealed to me, and my observation even from the from the very early days. In those days, we had John Henry. There was a AO Management, Dinesh Desai, uh, sort of ancient history names, but um, they were in the main systematic in their approach, and so the idea of AHL very much appealed to me because the AHL was and endeavoured to become more uh, systematic. Uh, and that's something that um, very much attracted me to AHL. Mm. And same with um, Tomiso. I met um, Tomiso in London because he was a, a keen opera fan. So uh, mm-hmm. he used to come over and we used to meet and, 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 and share that interest. But um, it um, he was an extraordinarily systematic uh uh, trader and a systematic man, um, and um, I thought that was uh, it very, very attractive and sensible, something solid that I could understand. Um, and and why, or, what, or maybe I should ask, what happened at the time at AHL that meant when you started working with Tamiso, you were focusing on currencies early on. As I mentioned, the, the the belief was that was shared by by Bob Tomiso and myself was that um, the game was becoming too crowded, mm. and um, so we looked for another game that was not crowded, uh, and that was currencies right. uh, entirely bi-directional. Um, and and as Bob Tomiso did say at the time, the great thing about currency markets is they're so big that we can't screw them up. Mm. Whereas if you look at the history of managed futures, when it bursts its way into a new market, such as LME, which is basically a producers and consumers with a very small speculative interest, mm-hmm. uh, when the quote-unquote funds discover that, they tend to upset the balance of it and mm-hmm. it becomes a less, should we say, reliable uh, uh, market from our point of view. Yeah. Um, not necessarily from the participants' point of view, but from our point of view, those who are, uh, when, the, when the speculative um, part becomes too big, it becomes sort of a, out of equilibrium. Hmm. You know, it's just interesting because I remember back in the day, you know, you say 1993 or thereabouts, I mean, managed futures were still around a $10 billion industry, so it wasn't a sort of an, an AUM huge. But I, I, I do accept that many, many times uh, it's been said that, you know, uh, CTAs or, or any any strategy is becoming too big for themselves. So uh, I, I I agree that that, uh, that that notion can certainly drive you to take, uh, you know, go in a different direction. And I think that's true. It's true now with 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 hedge funds. I mean, you you have to question. I mean, how many how many hedge fund managers does the world need, and could we get <laughs> by with fewer? My guess is we probably could. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's not a subject you brought up at the moment, but I'd point out that at Tamiso we were very successful in terms of um, uh, returns, asset raising. It was a very very successful uh, program. Uh, at that time, at no time did we have a price feed in the office. Mm. And when signals were generated, it was 7 a.m. New York time, uh, Carol, the lady in the office, would Mm. then call Prue, who were our main (laughs) broker at that time, in London and speak to somebody called Sid and ask him for the mid-range prices. (laughs) Sid would give us the mid-range prices. Yeah. And then the trades would be done, and he'd fax back the fills, and basically we were done for the day. And so, when you have that sort of memory of how these things can be done and be be so successful, when I hear conversations later on in life mm-hmm. um, about high frequency trading and technology 
and nanosecond uh, trading systems and this, that, and the other. That, um, it makes me feel either extremely old <laughs> or, or extremely sensible that we never got involved with that sort of thing, where the margins for success apparently are defined as being very, very small indeed. Mm. I mean... I think it's an interesting subject, and maybe we can uh, I can tap into your memory a little bit about that before we move on. You say that Tamisa was very successful at the time. Do you, do you can you put words on why? What made you so successful? What did you do differently, or what did you do just generally that people were attracted to? I think in us. In our way, we had a, um, I'm tempted to say aura, some other people would say arrogance um, about us, that due to the leadership of Bob Tomiso, we were driven very much by um, quality of life. And Bob was a very successful and balanced individual, it always seemed to me. Uh, and I would contrast him with some of the um, frantic, almost foaming at the mouth, grabbiness of some managers that I meet now. Um, and I guess that came out in the way that we presented ourselves. As I say, some people saw it as a as a positive vibe, as to mm -hmm. give it a modern term, but uh, but other people saw it as arrogance but we were happy with what we did and how we did it mm. we didn't have any aspiration to take an awful lot more clients on awful lot more money on and remember in those days because the internet um, didn't exist mm. uh, th there was an infrastructure limit to mm. the amount of um, accounts uh, or, or in those days bank desks that we could actually trade through mm. and at one time we were dealing with 12 14 or so um in this day and age of course this is no problem at all sure. but back then it was but bob specifically was was very clear on who he did want to do business with and who he did not want to do business with and i, I suppose to some extent we at inch today we, we still have that that certain view i mean for at the moment inch doesn't have any marketing and never really has had any marketing mm. um you know if you ask what our biggest single failure is i would say well my biggest single failure is that we is that we are are hopeless at marketing um and that that dates back to the tamiso days where we weren't a marketing operation we're a manager of money not a management of people sure You you talk about Bob Tomiso as as a great mentor, and I think mentors have clearly become, or they have been very uh, important for certain managers. I mean, I talk when I did my uh, conversation with Jerry Parker, um, and he obviously talks about his experience through the Turtle Program and and the mentorship that he had early on uh, from Richard Dennis. Um, what was the most important thing that you think? Bob Tomiso told you? Uh, to show up. Always show up. You win by showing up. Mm. Because most people are unable to meet that minimum requirement for whatever reason, one of which might be they were overgeared and simply have to leave the table. Mm. Showing up is very important. Um, Bob's best friend was and is um, Larry Height mm. from Market Wizards One. And um, Larry Height was... Um, 
very often in our office in uh, in New York. Yeah. Larry Hyatt was also a, 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 a truly great individual. Yeah. And it was, but entirely systematic. These, these are not people who didn't represent their greatness by pretending that they knew tomorrow's prices. Sure. And what, uh, because I, I seem to remember that there were some joint ventures being formed, maybe even with, with, with Heights Group and MAN. So tell me about what happened when you, uh, after a few years with, with Tamiso. Well, I, I think we did a joint venture with MAN, well, with, um, uh, with Stanley Fink, right. in, um, who is another a superb individual, um, of, uh, sort of a giant of the industry, as, sure. as, as indeed was Larry. Um, can't say enough good things about him. But um, we did a joint venture, and in effect, they took over the the marketing and other aspects of of the Kintyre program. And, and the reason that they did it was at the time, our currency program was substantially better than AHL's currency program. Right. And if you're representing yourself as a um, a diversified a commodity program with X billion dollars under management. Well, in effect, you're really not. You're trading an awful lot of indices, an awful lot of interest rates, and an awful lot of currencies, mm. and relatively speaking, not much pork bellies. <laughs> um, so if you've got one of those main legs that is a little bit wobbly, you've got a big problem. Mm. And so they were on the lookout for a program that was better than than or demonstrably better than than the one that they were using for currencies at that time and and I think we we filled that gap and so Bob and I um, basically parted company in 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 no um I think Bob is much older than me if, mm -hmm. if, despite what you say there are people older than me <laughs> uh, and so um I came back to the UK and um Started a new program under a, a, a new company, which was Inch. Mm -hmm. uh, so relocated it to Switzerland in uh, 2004 and physically moved here in 2006, mm -hmm. 2007. Mm -hmm. I um, now, of course, sort of running Inch is is a big part of your life today, I'm sure. But I'm just curious before we sort of dive too deep into other sort of more business related things. What else do you spend your time doing? Other on the on the sort of leisure side, I like to play golf, mm -hmm. and I and I like buy cars, mm -hmm. and I travel quite a lot to the UK and around the UK, but mostly Scotland. I have a close tie to to, to Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, from a business point of view, I spend most of my time getting in the way of the research department, mm -hmm. and generally annoy people here in the office not so long ago i had a um, a medical issue and um it both gratified me and uh, depressed me to see that i wasn't missed at all <laughs> and that um the business ran perfectly well and some would argue uh with a lot of uh, positive uh, evidence uh that it ran a lot better without me so uh, <laughs> uh and, and being systematic traders um yeah. the reality is um we are going to do what the system says we are going to do. Um, there's a good and bad about that. Um, the good thing is we don't have to worry terribly much. We can sleep perfectly well at night. Uh, the, the the bad thing is it doesn't make us terribly interesting people. The, the, the world, if you watch CNBC or something like that, they have the talking heads there sort of 
pinstripe suited soothsayers and uh, <laughs> that sort of thing who are intimating either subtly or not subtly that they have some insight as tomorrow's uh, prices. Well, we, of course, have no insight as tomorrow's prices. Um, so there's a, there's a limit to how much we can entice people with, with what we can intimate. Um, basic, uh, basically, it, it is what it is. And that's that I did mention earlier. We're not terribly good at marketing, and now you're hearing a perfectly worked <laughs> example of it. Um, what we, we will follow the system with um, with um, uh, uh, discipline and patience and low leverage. And uh, to go back to Bob to me, so yes. this will enable us to show up again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we have many sort of topics, specific topics that I want to touch base on. I'd like to if I can, in an elegant way, phrase a more broad question to begin with. And that is, when you decide to seek mastery in a particular craft, like building a successful asset management business, you can almost call it kind of a, a quest that you embark on. And for some people, this quest is to bring purpose in their life, for example. But your quest over so many years what do you think has been sort of the what has been the aim or the goal that you've been seeking in that you know long career um well first of all i'd say it about inch at the moment the fact that inch is i suppose it exists or is as big or as successful as it is at the moment is almost entirely accidental <laughs> um when i first came moved to switzerland in 2006 um it wasn't really the intention to go back into business. It, well, it really wasn't. I mean, yes, I took an office and yes, I got a secretary and, and, and that sort of thing, but it really wasn't the intention. It just so happens that uh, we've been fortunate and people have have found us and the, 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 the business has, has grown. So on in answer to your question, on the one hand, there's no, there's nothing that, that, that drives the establishment and the growth of inch forward at least not from 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 me nowadays i would say well i look at some of the people i've worked with michael mighty david um other people that tell um other firms who passed through or i've known who are at uh, ahl or wherever and i i see that the success they've had and inch we i have not had that success and the reason for that is we're not perhaps as driven uh, as they are to become large. We're not as good at running a business, perhaps, as they are. Um, we're certainly not as, as very good at, good at marketing, perhaps. But having said that, our numbers are better <laughs> in terms of performance. So, you know, we've got one out of three right. Uh, but from our point of view, it's probably the most important one. So when and, and if, leaping back to Bob Tomisa again, we're not unhappy with where we are. Um, in a way, I would say, wouldn't it be nicer if we had just half as much as Aspect or three times as much as Winton? But we haven't. We are where we are, uh, and we're happy where we are. And and this to me is is obviously what's quite interesting because, as you rightly point out, and obviously I've seen your numbers, so uh, I do agree with you. They. Uh, They look great. Um, this is what's interesting because to me, and that's partly why I do 
what I do uh, with these uh, podcasts, and that is to shed light on people where, uh, or at least to encourage investors to maybe find the courage to go and think a little bit outside the norm and to uh, take a chance, uh, so to speak, on a manager who's not mainstream and not top 10 in size. And let's, you know, help each other to get away from the fact that nowadays most allocations are based on on size rather than maybe skill or something else. But anyways, that's uh, that's just sort of my own motivation, but, um, but I agree with you. Um, right. The first thing I wanted to ask about, and in, in a sense, it maybe ties a little bit back to what you just said now about sort of organizations and some organizations have become, you know, very institutional and become very good at that. Um, um, what about yourself? What have you focused on in building your organization and what does it look like today? Um, in Lugano here, we have eight people. We have... Um three on research. We have my partner, uh, Jeff Baker, who's been enormously helpful and influential in the building of the business, uh, not only on the trading side, but on the business side. Um, Pernod Schneider, uh, who is a, an extraordinary clever young lady uh, on research. Um, Philip Babich, who's just joined us. Uh, in London, we have Rivaldi, uh, who started off as, a, I think his master's in, is in um aeronautical engineering or some such thing from Oklahoma. So I guess he's about as close as we have to a real rocket scientist. But <laughs> um, so I, I like young people. I like young people who've never worked anywhere else. Mm. I don't want anybody turning to me and say, yes, but this is the way we used to do it at Merrill because mm. I'm not interested in how we used to do it at Merrill. Mm. Uh, the young people have good ideas. I like people who manage themselves. As I mentioned, we're managers of money, not managers of people. If I notice that your grandmother has died three times and you need to go to a funeral uh, three times in a year, then that's probably going to attract my attention. But otherwise, I let people get on with um, with uh, what they want to do. I, the army term would be delegation is the key to command, and I think that that's, uh, that's probably true. Mm. I know those other cliches, my door is always open and all this other nonsense, but um, <laughs> uh, I don't think we've had two people leave us in the last seven years. Uh, both of them involuntary. It was to do with the um, uh, they having to return to their home country, having completed their studies and visa situation here in Switzerland. And we've had one person that um, I didn't really ask to leave. It became obvious that, it, that, that they should leave, mm. um, as is often the case. Uh, so our turnover is um, is extremely low, and I and I I think people are are happy here. I must say we probably ruin them from working for anybody else because we are not <laughs> hierarchical in any sense. Why do you need two offices, Chris? When I go to London, uh, I, I need somewhere to go because it rains <laughs> and sometimes I need to be indoors. Right. Um, uh, we have a, 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 a very, very good young man called Rivaldi, Quan uh, mm. in, um, in London, uh, who worked for us here in um in, in Switzerland, and because he is um, Indonesian, uh, he was not permitted to stay here, and I didn't want to lose them. Right. So uh, it does no harm for us to have a sure. representative office in London, and I couldn't find anybody better sure. at all to, than uh, to ask uh, Rivaldi to, uh, to, 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 to operate it, and that's what he does. Okay. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, I call it track record, but what I really mean by that is obviously your program has been running for, for quite a while. 
Um, and with managers, uh, especially, I guess, in the systematic space, you know, programs, models, approaches, risk management, whatever it might be, changes over time. So before we sort of dive into the strategy, maybe just from a pure track record point of view, if someone asked you, how should I read your track record? What should I focus on? Has there been some major changes, upgrades, innovations, whatever we call it, um, that I should be aware of? Because in my personal experience, I think people often look at track records and think that they should expect the same going forward. And I would caution about that because as we all know, um, you know, people, programs change. And so to some extent, I would almost argue that it's better to look, if you can get it, on a manager's back-tested version of the current configuration to see you know, what the program is really doing today, but that's very hard information to, to get hold of. So that's why I'm interested in, in the whole track record issue, um, just to bring light on that. How should, how should investors look at your track record if they asked you? Well, that's an awfully good and awfully big question. Um, first of all, I should say that we present our, our numbers in two different ways. Okay. The first one is without the deduction of uh, any fees. It's it's a sort of a straight alpha number mm-hmm. and without leverage. Mm-hmm. So it's one-to-one and there's no credit for interest. That can be important. Some people say we should add interest, but that would make us look a bit better. So what you're looking at when you look at the one-to-one is pure alpha. Mm -hmm. The other way we show it is, again, without credit of interest, but net of two and 20, and at three times leverage. Three times leverage is as high as we go. Mm-hmm. The reason being is we, we, we like to think that we're going to be staying in business. And um, three to one leverage basically gives us the same standard deviation as the S&P 500, right. um, but substantially higher returns. So that's why we, as a ballpark, we that's, that's as high as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, our program hasn't effectively changed in any sense at all over the years um, it is systematic trend following we started off with 10 markets it's always the majors we don't do emerging markets uh, we, we added a couple of Swissy crosses in I think 2008 and then about two years ago we added Euro CAD and Euro Australia so now we trade 16. It, it, it should be 7 times 7, 21 uh, crosses. But in actual fact, due to obvious reasons, we only trade 16 of them. The, in, in our business, there are four main drivers for a, for a currency system, basically. I mean, we can dance around it a bit and dress it up a bit. But there are basically four main systems, one of which is um, the interest rate differential, what is now called the, uh, the carry trade. Um, there is momentum breakout there is some form of volatility trading and there's some sort of purchasing pa- uh, parity mm-hmm. type programs those those are basically the four bricks <coughs> excuse me you um for our kind of system is built in the main on interest rate differential and breakout so you will quickly see that over the last 4 or 5 years that the money that we've made has not been made from carry trade because with interest rates where they are, sure. there's not a lot to be done there. So any money we've made has come from interest rate differential. So when this goes back to your another part of your question, when you look at the, the, the full length of somebody's track record, and ours is 14 and a half years now, you 
look at what was possible generally speaking this is a thumbnail mm-hmm. thought but generally speaking what was possible now if and and what is possible what do you get for rolling t bills the risk free rate what do you get for doing nothing yeah. it's the risk free rate okay now at the beginning of this century we can say that um, the risk free rate was let's say 4 or 5% something like that so if i made five times the risk free rate your returns are 25% mm. Today, if I make five times the risk-free rate, your returns are what? Two and a half percent? Yeah, at a maximum, yeah. But basically, that, that, that there, there is some equivalency mm. in, 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 in how you can compare those things. Um, so, uh, you, you, as an investor, you have to look at a sort of a, literally, a macro view for this particular asset class, what was doable. Mm. What is reasonably doable? What was a reasonable expectation? If you look at the stock market, for example, it's doubled over the last X number of years. Well, that that's reasonable. Now, if yeah. your manager has done twice as well as that, I guess you'd say looking backwards, not forwards, but backwards, that's pretty good. Yeah. If he's done half as well as that, you'd say, actually, that's not too good, is it? Mm. In our business, what has been reasonable from currencies over the last four or five years has not been a particularly exciting number um but that doesn't mean it won't be sure. because you invest for tomorrow not for yesterday which mm. is uh, that's something else you mentioned in, in earlier i think uh, in our business that is to say that the hedge fund if that's what we are um managed futures business if that's what we are there's a lot of groupism mm. uh, investors like to be seen to be with the, with the new hot-handed guy sure um, so people you know, crash to earth um, pretty quickly in this business occasionally and take the investors with them. We've seen that time after time after time. We call it that the faster gunslinger syndrome. Mm. I mean, if I, if I tell you, for example, last year we were up 20%. You say, 20%? I met a guy last month. He was up 20% just that month. <laughs> and you'd say, well, okay, but I don't know how many times I've been pushed out of the way by a faster gunslinger turned the corner and there he is face down in the street. Sure. And guess what? There's a f- another faster gunslinger coming up again. Mm. There's always one. Yeah. Um, but uh, they tend not to have um, uh, very uh, long careers. Sure. So looking at the program uh, today, and, and as you mentioned, is it fair to, if we're going to try and visualize it, that for the four things that you mentioned, that that's what a pro- currency program can do, that as long as you know roughly would you say that those four and and i'm i'm sort of asking out of ignorance here but are those four categories you mentioned the carry momentum volatility and purchasing power are they individually able to produce the same level of return but at different times of course yes yes now what i would say is that over time by far and away the most successful of the four has been the um, interest rate differential carry trade. Right. Next would be the uh, breakout, then probably at various times volatility. And it, uh, there's a danger here, of course, for investors because currency managers that have done well over the last couple of years, you can almost say, well, you've done well, but you haven't done it on a carry trade basis, have you? And you probably haven't done it on a breakout or momentum type basis either. So you're doing something else. What's left? So you're doing some sort of volatility trade. Okay, that's fine. But is that going to be the environment 
that is going to um, uh, present itself tomorrow. Mm. So, and, and a lot of managers, they do continually change their system. And that's fine. Um, they do it for two reasons. One, because they think they're going to improve ret- returns by changing their system. And, and secondly, more dangerously, is because they sense that this new approach is the approach that, from a marketing point of view, is more likely to attract fresh assets. So you'll see people describe themselves as vol traders. Mm. <laughs> Why? Because they read in the Wall Street Journal that people are writing checks to vol traders. Well, are they really? I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of like when the CTA start calling themselves hedge funds because nobody likes CTAs. That's right. That's right. You see, you see I, I always said, said, as you heard me say just now, I, I don't know if we're a hedge fund. I don't know if we're a CTA. As a currency manager, yeah. we have always been basically the redheaded stepchild of both industries. Mm. We don't trade futures, therefore we're not managed futures, I suppose. Hedge fund, that's a bit of a misnomer anyway, because there's nothing to hedge. So you tell me. To me, it's a label. It doesn't really matter. But um, I suppose for allocators, you've got to tick boxes and mm. put you on one form as opposed to another form. It is important, but not to me. You mentioned the word environment just before, and I think that's an important thing I'd like to dive into a little bit before we move on to maybe the strategy itself and how you go about it. But I think it is important for investors to understand in which environment should they expect uh, a strategy to work. And as you clearly uh, mentioned, you know, for, for your strategy, the last couple of years, carry would have been very difficult to uh, to work with due to what the central banks have been doing. But try and explain to me what the environment has actually been like for a currency program in the last, say, five years from when we've really had intervention, if we can use it, that word, um, from, from authorities. Because we know that traditional trend following has been difficult. But how do you then put it into perspective of, say, your strategy in, in one area of 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 the uh, diversified universe how how do you see the environment and 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 how it's changed and what might change it again well uh, from our point of view uh the environment has not been favorable having said that next to our peers um we've done extremely well uh some of them fx concepts for example and there are many many others have had horrific and fatal um, periods um, for some of them. Mm. We haven't. We've, we've done pretty well. But th- th- having said that, just because we've done well d- doesn't really mean that it's been ideal because it has been anything but ideal. With volatility as low as it is, it's been uh, very, very difficult. Um, but as I say, we, we, we come in, we show up every day and we do what we do and We've done okay. We have not changed our system. Um, we do anticipate a return of uh, volatility. That is very, very positive for us and for other trend followers. If they're genuine trend followers, that, that should be a very good thing for currency um, managers. I would say that having been in this sort of period previously, I would say 92, 93, followed by 94 would be a, a similar uh, period of time. Uh, we, we say in our business that volatility doesn't rise, it jumps. Mm. And um, a lot of people in our business, I suspect, who have changed their systems may well get caught out by that jump. Mm. Uh, they will have changed their system to um, 
to fit with the environment as they see it now, just in time for the environment to change. Quick question here. You've been around and you, as you mentioned, you can go back at previous times and say, you know, 92, 93, 94 look similar And uh, if you just stay with what you do and so on and so forth, things will, uh, you know, go back and, 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 and models will start producing returns again uh, to levels that you would expect. Now, we hear often and we certainly heard in the last uh, recent times that this time it's different. So I would like to ask you if you can explain why these things actually aren't different and why things tend to return to the norm regardless of the fact that certainly the things that the authorities have done this time clearly they are different they are using new techniques and new things but you seem to be under uh, you know uh, the belief that that's not going to last forever and the markets will return to how they always behave why where does that belief come from um although the tools that they're using now are um i suppose you could say are are, are new i i don't think anyone would think that what they're doing is sustainable that is to say they cannot continue to do it and indeed if you look at the fed they're not um they're, they're cutting back on qe and this that and the other uh, currency markets are different to most markets or, or to any other market i could say because um they are completely bi-directional Uh, which makes them ideal markets for uh, or the, the popular press phrase would be sort of currency wars or competitive devaluations or competitive uh, rate rises or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and because of the tools that have been used, not in spite of, but because of the tools that have been used, I can easily see that um, not only will the environment going, looking forward become Uh, more favorable it'll become very much more favorable and very quickly i just don't know when that very quickly will start mm. it may well have already started i don't know mm. but, but but just just again just to 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 uh, for the benefit of the listeners here why do you say that it's going to be even more favorable what is it in in that statement that that you know that you feel that the, the markets and, and let's take currency markets which obviously is your expertise what is it about them that it kind of you know it's kind of you know a kind of a cycle isn't it that where you know if you stretch the the, the rubber band too too much then you're going to have an even bigger move uh, when it comes back Um, is is that what you see in currencies that they can do whatever they want for a period of time, but once they you know let go, um, things are going to be even better, and we're going to have you know above normal returns for a period of time. Now we've had sub sub uh, returns for a while. Um, well, first of all, I say that the potential for uh, 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 substantially high returns is it, it exists. Yeah. Whether or not we inch will be able to participate in those successfully, I don't know. I couldn't right. make that representation, but. What the action of the authorities has done is they have certainly put us in uncharted territory, not only for us, but also for them. Uh, they have also, from a sort of a, my observation be, uh, the, 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 the toolkit is, 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 is a little bit bare. Uh, or you could say another way, they're, they're sort of running out of ammunition. Mm. Um, generally speaking, Another sort of broad uh, observation would be that central bank intervention itself in the currency markets, at least, hasn't been particularly successful 
when you take a, a step back and look at it, you see the Australian, the Japanese interventions recently. Um, this is not something that they could, they can slow it down and they can sort of reverse a move for a short period of time. But um, once they've actually intervened, then the, 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 the trend that was established before the intervention resumes and, and, and on it goes. So I don't think central banks are to the market least of all the, the currency markets as um, as scary as they as they were way back in the 90s for example mm. um, and less so now given the uh, uh, the 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 extraordinary interventions and, and I mean sort of um, tools that they've 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 used uh, that have uh, I think in, increased the risk of exactly what they they, they hope to avoid mm. I want to go and talk about you know the, the the program itself, Cantillo, and and what would like you to to describe how you've structured it and 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 so on and so forth. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you if there is a particular objective with the program. Now, obviously, one objective could be could be just to say, well, you know, we want to make money every year, but. There could also be other objectives. For example, there could be certain periods of time where you want to make money or be more certain uh, that you make money. Is there any objective in your design of the program that you've tried to achieve? Now, the answer to that is no. Okay. Uh, the, the system is, in fact, designed uh, to produce uh, absolute returns. Uh, so after many, many years, we've been able to do that and from that we've been able to make a number of observations for example uh, it has a very strong um, positive benefit to an equity portfolio uh, our positive months uh, seem to happen at a time when the equity markets have negative months and on it goes so the benefit the benefit of including our particular program and I, I assume other similar programs uh, in a, a, a portfolio that is otherwise predominated by um, uh, uh, equities is 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 quite pronounced. Why now that's something that wasn't it wasn't designed to do that. Sure. It just has. Why do you think that is? Because it's not sort of. Um I mean, it's it's not sort of a natural conclusion I would have drawn. And if you just trade one asset class that that would actually have a particular correlation to another asset class in particular when we're dealing with currencies where as you said you're dealing with every time we have a currency pair we're dealing with two different countries so to speak and 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 and, and their economies um it would have been easier for me to assume if you were trading equities themselves and you just have some models that would react very quickly when markets started to fall why do you think your your correlation have been uh, as it is Uh, I really don't have a direct answer to that. Okay. I, I really don't know. In fact, what, what I've just said is an observation, a factual yeah. observation. Um, it wasn't created to do that. It just it just has, and it's a it's a very stark benefit it has to a, 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 a equity portfolio. Um, I, I would say that one of the reasons might be is that uh, currency markets are first and foremost. Um, markets of of, of, of of capital flow. Mm. So I guess if people are selling stocks, they're putting it in a currency, mm. um, and people are buying new businesses or selling businesses or investing or divesting on a sort of a much larger scale than simply buying, you know, widget PLC or something like that. So um, perhaps that's got something to do with it. But in in any uh, event, and whatever the reason, it is a pronounced um, fact. 
You mentioned that you were trading sort of the G7 currencies and you're obviously pairing them up. Um, but the currency markets have kind of changed in the last 20 years, certainly with the introduction of the euro and and and, 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 and other things. Um, how has liquidity, I'm just curious here, I mean, how have you observed liquidity in the foreign exchange markets uh, in, in recent times? Uh, people talk about equity volumes, you know, being at the lowest level for many, many years and so on and so forth. But what does the interbank market in currencies look like nowadays? Well, we only trade the majors. So we don't trade any of the um, so-called emerging or submerging currencies. We um, just basically uh, trade the, the the main currencies crossed against each other. So it's seven times seven, twenty-one. Mm. And as I mentioned, we trade sixteen of those. Uh, there is, and we and we trade very infrequently, uh, relatively speaking. Our um, Winning trades are held on average for about 16, 18 days or so, and our okay. losing trades are held for six days okay. on average. And that's been the case over the full uh, uh, period of the uh, track record. So uh, liquidity and transparency are amongst the most important attributes that any market can have. And in fact, I remember uh, Dean Witter a, a hundred years ago, they would always, I think there was a list of seven characteristics that a market must have in order to become considered investable. I've forgotten what four of them were, but the first three were um, uh, liquidity, transparency. Uh, well, I now I've forgotten what the third one is. Well, okay. as well. But the point is that the currency markets are blessed yeah. with liquidity and transparency to a far, far, far greater degree than equity or fixed income markets. Do you trade futures or do you trade the interbank market and the reason i ask is that with the recent crisis uh, we know that banks became much more suspicious of each other let's put it that way and uh, uh, and maybe didn't you know trust uh, large lines and dealing facilities with each other um how 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 did you uh, experience uh, that or what, what what were your experience with this well, we just trade spot. Okay. So um, for our, our our business couldn't be more simple and straightforward. Okay. Um, although I suppose you could say it is a derivative business. It's um, it, it is a pretty ch childproof um, derivative business compared to some. So we we haven't experienced any issues at all in that regard. Sure. Tell me about if you if you would can you. Um Take me through the, the, the program, the structure, the sort of overall uh, look and feel of it and, and how you um, sort of divide it into maybe different types of, of uh, models and, and, and their function, so to speak. Okay. Well, I've mentioned the, uh, the four types of yeah. – uh, forget volatility and forget um, purchasing power. In the main, sure. most currency programs like ours are made up of um, – interest rate differential and momentum breakout. Ours is about 70-30, okay. uh, favoring interest rate differential. Um, <clears throat> it is a matrix. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think we probably do that's slightly different is that we don't regard the crosses as, um, as currencies per se. If I say to you, for example, dollar-yen, mm -hmm. you're immediately going to start thinking about Japanese exports and abonomics and all of this, that, and the other. Well, of course, the computers don't see that. They just see a row of numbers that have or have not 
changing relationships with each other in terms of volatilities or correlations or whatever. Mm. So what we have is 16 rows of numbers. And we try not to think about the, the computers do not think about them in terms of being countries, if you will. Sure. They're just rows of numbers. Yeah. Um, when we put on a trade, and our systems are, is entirely probability-based. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's based on probability is because we are not predictive in any sense. Sure. We have no idea what tomorrow's prices are going to be. I wish we did. <laughs> if we did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's right. <laughs> but we don't. And so at the time of instigation, all trades are risk equivalent. Mm. And the reason they are risk equivalent is precisely as I've said, if we knew that this trade was better than that trade, we wouldn't make that trade. We just make twice as many of this trade. But we don't know. So all trades are risk equivalent at time of instigation. Um, what will take us out of a trade is an increase in volatility both on the upside and, and, and the downside. High volatility tends to uh, terminate a trend. Low volatility tends to initiate a trend, uh, generally speaking. And so that's the way our system works. So if we look at some of the positions at the moment, we see that we are long two risk units of uh, dollar-yen. Um, we went long on the 1st of September at 104.293, and it's currently 109. 226. So that's been a successful trade for us. We have a losing trade. We are long one risk unit of EuroCAD at 141.82, and it's currently 141.52. So that's that's a, a losing trade. Each of these trades have their own um, trailing stop, which is based on time and volatility, uh, which hopefully keeps us out of. Um, out of trouble uh, when volatility in that particular trade does pick up. As I mentioned, high volatility tends to uh, terminate a trend. Low volatility tends to initiate a trend. Mm. Uh, we are extremely low geared. Um, it ranges from one to one to three to one. And um, the reason for that is that you, you know, you're always – Make, as David Harding used to say at, at AHL, you always make money in this business if you don't go broke first. <laughs> what is going to make you go broke? Leverage. Sure. So if you intend to be in a position to show up again tomorrow, you've got to keep uh, uh, your place at the table. And that means you don't lose all of your money, no mm. matter how certain the trade looks. We trade entirely systematically, um, uh, entirely disciplined because – and I think most people can identify with this, whether they tend to, 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 to use the information or not is their choice. But our observation would be people lose money for two main reasons. The first is emotion, hope, greed, and fear, bad inputs for a trading strategy. And the second is ego. If you get something right, you might bet a little more. Now you know something, get two things right, suddenly you're a genius and you're on CNBC. And now you're going to increase your gearing and you're a truly, truly dangerous person. Um, so if you can remove emotion and ego through a set of rules, which is what we do, then you've already got an advantage over other investors. Mm. At least that's the way we see it. Um, we don't claim that we have any predictive or special insight at all. We, 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 we leave that to others. Is it the same models that trade all 16 crosses? Now, interesting enough, uh, the the um, the Tomiso program was, 
it unbelievably enough in those days we traded forwards and we trade traded um 28 different um crosses mm-hmm. uh with one algorithm it was a one size fits all algorithm wow. okay uh unbelievable but yeah. that's that's what we did <clears throat> uh Quintillo is a lot more sophisticated the uh, each of the 16 crosses mm. um has its own algorithm uh, people these days get terribly excited about the word algorithm and think you're <laughs> a really clever chap because you've got an algorithm. But an algorithm is simply a, a set of rules. Sure. That you, and if, you, if you have a set of rules, you either follow them, in which case you have a set of rules, or you don't follow them, in which case you don't have a set of rules. Yeah. We do follow our rules. Uh, so we make no representation to anybody other than the fact that we will follow the rules that we've set out. Mm. So is that to, to be understood that that there's kind of one and i let's just call it a, a, a model uh, so a set of rules becomes a model so there's just one model for each currency pair that's right wow. well the, the model itself is made up of a, of a different component parts right but it's like anything else it's like a machine or a car the more moving parts you have mm. the greater the probability that word again probability mm. of breakdown sure. uh, so you can and I think in our industry generally, there's a there's a sort of a love affair with perceived cleverness, um, which is not certainly not requited, but um, it's certainly um, not terribly helpful. I think we we are in love with cleverness when simplicity should be um, uh, uh, found to be more attractive. Uh, I, in my view, no, no, I completely agree. But tell me what what could be the difference between two models? Then um, you know, in in the sense that. Uh, once you start deviating away from, you know, trading one model across all markets, you mm-hmm. you always have the the notching question about you know optimization and so on and so forth. How how what 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 would be the difference if you sort of vis- should visualize it uh, between you know the algorithm you use for one currency uh, cross and and the next one. Uh, the, the parameters would be set differently. So, for example, the uh, there'll be a couple of instances. For ex- example, the uh, parameter for that measures or defines volatility right. for one cross would be different to another cross, and that of course uh, builds to uh, the, the 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 risk equivalency of the of the of of the price streams. If you if you follow. Right. Me. So the principle, in a sense, is the same, meaning that you're looking for some kind of breakout. Um, as, as the main methodology in, in, in this case. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, and, and they are remarkably simple. I think people would be uh, either surprised or appalled at how simple um, uh, the the rules actually are. Mm-hmm. They're encoded in, 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 in computer speak mm-hmm. because it's more efficient for us to do this. But you certainly with Kintyre, the Tomiso program, right. you could literally write it out and work it out by hand, if sure. you had the interest and the time, uh, Quintillo is slightly more complex than that, but not much, mm. uh, because you, you come into a point where, and I speak on a lot of panels and meet a lot of people, and they they tell me how <laughs> terribly clever their system is, and to which I always say, well, could you write it down on a single sheet of paper for me, because I'm not terribly terribly bright. And um, well, no, no, it's you don't understand. Well, anytime any but it tells you that you don't understand. It means you probably do. Sure. And what it means is that they've convinced themselves that they're very, very clever indeed. Uh, we do, we haven't. We're, we're very simple indeed. We describe ourselves as not the sort of a not the genius, uh, but the uh, the idiot savant. We don't know very much about anything, but what we do know, we really do know. 
I feel I have to 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 deviate a little bit here and and ask you a question because I think it's so important to understand, and that is, what do you think the larger managers with uh you know the 50 or 100 phds what do you think it is that they do actually because performance wise sometimes not always but sometimes it's very very difficult to tell the difference between a firm that has you know 50 phds and the firm that has one phd or non phd what do you think that actually they do other than creating more capacity i i do understand that that's can be a big part of research is to find out how do we execute 10 billion that i understand but what else do you think that they achieve um with all this research uh the answer to that is i don't really know okay there are um one or two very very good examples of firms that are extremely well run Mm. from a business point of view from a research point of view from a trading and execution point of view uh, who you would say is a level of, of, of genius and they're brimful of PhDs. Yeah. I would speak of Winton, yeah. for example. Yeah. Uh, you would think of, should we say, some others, which which I won't name, who are sort of wannabe Wilt Wintons, uh, who who's, might come out of the blocks looking like geniuses, but um, soon stumble and fall on their face and just look a bit silly for mm. all the in, semi-intellectual nonsense that they've um, uh, spewed forth and why I don't know you'd have to ask them mm. uh, I, I really don't know um, the, 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 the cleverness it, you see to me to me so would say and Larry Hyatt would say that, you know, this is an extremely easy business mm. uh, there's nothing to this business because you keep scoring dollars and you get a print out every night mm. <laughs> are you up or are you down a black number red number plus sign minus sign this is not hard mm. now you might have all sorts of reasons as to why the number isn't as big or is is a minus number or whatever but it doesn't change the number mm. and it's the same with prices for that matter you, you hear people talk about um, uh, price of the stocks or whatever it is well yeah, it, 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 that's all very well and good but you might have a think the price is wrong and you often hear people say oh the price is wrong well well <laughs> we have a view on that you might think the price is wrong mm. and you might be right it might, might be higher or lower it doesn't matter the fact of the matter is it doesn't change the price sure and um you know what do these phds do i don't know maybe they argue with the price <laughs> i wanted to go back and ask you about your models because you mentioned the fact that you're a trend follower but you also mentioned the fact that volatility and increase in volatility and I want to make sure I understand it correctly. Can increase in volatility completely cause an exit of that model? Or is it a reduction of position size? And the reason I ask that is because we know, of course, that trend following as a general rule means that the trend actually has to change before you get out. So you kind of, you know. So I just wanted to see whether there was a bit of a twist here on when you talk about trend following, um, that in fact it, it, it's it's trend following but you know it's kind of a with a with a, a chance or at least to to actually get out um during the trend because of changes in volatility rather than a price change um yeah the volatility will is generally speaking what takes us out okay. one of the problems we've had over the last year i suppose uh, 11 10 10 11 months is the volatility has been so low mm. uh, it's resulted in us being in all 16 trades all the time. Right. Now, the average holding period for a losing trade has remained the same. It's six days. Mm. 
But the holding period for a winning trade has dropped from 16, 18 days mm. down to about six days as well. So uh, that's the sort of the statistical definition of the trend follower's nightmare, which mm. is getting whipsawed. Yeah. Now, over this last month, we've noticed that we are now getting taken out of some of these trades. This is brilliant. This is excellent. Because now, for example, instead of having 16 trades on, we have 12 trades on. Mm. Uh, this shows to us that volatility is slowly returning. Mm. Um, and this is an environment in which um, uh, is, is more acceptable and more amenable to our type of system. Uh, I can't speak on for other people who describe themselves as trend following, but for certainly from our point of view, this is a positive development. Sure. So, uh, so just to confirm, so each of the uh, of the sixteen markets and, and and therefore our crosses and therefore models, they work completely independently. So all sixteen could be involved, uh, or that they're so if it's to do with the euros, there is no overriding uh, exposure limit on that uh, no. in in that sense. Okay. No, because each 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 price stream, if we yeah. don't even call them currency, each price stream um, has its own characteristics. Mm. Um, which vary for time for time, and that consequently has its own stop. And the stop, as I mentioned, is based upon volatility. So the the volatility of uh, euro yen is entirely different to the volatility of euro dollar, for mm. example. I mean, you've looked at obviously many different um, indicators over time. I'm sure, and uh, I'm just curious in in general. I mean, again, if we were going to going to help sort of the the listeners and 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 maybe the people who are who are who are aspiring to to become uh, you know a, a, a manager of funds uh, at some point in their career are there any indicators that you feel are more robust ready to learn more about the world's top traders go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of top traders unplugged <laughs>